Today's podcast is a amplification of the uh, presentation, a PowerPoint presentation. I'm trying, like I'm doing this for that script, okay? Like, I'm, I'm thinking of ways that I might make my work easier to uh, expose the garbage that our country is uh, presenting to us as truth when it's nothing but propaganda. So yesterday I created a PowerPoint-type presentation showing how the cost of living allowance, also known as COLA, is likely to help prove that you can get, at the same time, the service income support insurance plan and the earnings loss benefit. Now, I know this goes against the official party line. The official party line, and they designed it that way, so... You know, they have a reason. They don't want to pay twice. So, they use the CISIP program as the model for the earnings loss benefit program. Now, there are crucial differences, okay? The service income support insurance plan is a traditional long-term disability insurance plan where you pay a premium to get insurance coverage. But the earnings loss benefit is more like uh, the Canada Pension Plan with only the employer side of the contribution, like the employee slash soldier slash veteran doesn't actually see how much they contribute with the value of their service. But the thing is, nothing in life is free. So you can take it from me, you can take it to the bank, that the soldier's service and then their injury, it's a conditional benefit. It's not paid to every person who serves. It's paid to people who get injured in service. Now that's very much like the CISA program. Well, because they designed it that way. But the thing is, in each one of the policies, and I'll cover clawbacks in, in detail in a more uh, uh, direct you know, uh, segment, but... <clears throat> The CISA program has many clawbacks to save them money. If they, if the clawbacks work effectively, they won't pay. Now I ask you, how is that uh, good for the country? Uh, if you pay for something that you don't get, you won't trust it anymore. Now it's bad enough if a private insurance company is doing that, but if your country is doing it to you, well, you won't trust them. And then that'll affect national defense. That'll affect affect insurance sales because if people don't get what they pay for then they won't buy it in the future now where I was going with that is that the service income support insurance plan policy 901-102 in section 24b they put a little tiny provision in there that's supposed to help the disabled veteran it says that they won't take into account the COLA cost of living allowance, on a clawback. So, for example, if you get $1,000 a month Canadian Forces Superannuation Act pension, or the Canada Pension Plan, or the Earnings Loss Benefit, then if you're on it 20 years, they're always going to be only allowed to deduct on the CISIP side $1,000 a month. Now, because they modeled the program on the, earn, uh, the Earnings Loss Benefit program on the CISIP program, <laughs> 
We have a very similar clause in section 27.3 of the new Veterans Charter Regulations. So they don't take the cost of living into account. Now that brings us back to CISIP. Now if you recall what I said, CISIP doesn't take earning loss benefit COLA into account. Earning loss benefit don't take CISIP's COLA into account. And let's assume that, you know, the CISIP program is paying first because there's a harmonization agreement, a program arrangement, where they say that in section 3.2.1 or 3.1.2, I always get those numbers mixed up, but in the arrangement between the two departments, they said that the service income support insurance plan is the first payer. Now, I don't necessarily agree with first payer, and I'll cover it later, maybe. But I think first payer is garbage. I mean, in order to have first payer, which is a bad thing, you know, you have to have someone willing to fall on their sword that they're going to they're gonna pay, but the other person's not going to pay. So with two government departments, it's easy enough. They just decided that the CISA program would take the hit. <clears throat> Except, okay, well, anyway, I'll go on. So you get medically released. You're supposed to get both of these payments but because one is 75%, the other one is 75%, and because CISIP is the first payer, then CISIP makes the payment. Now, that's year one. And in year one, because the cost of living is not being taken into account yet, then that's just the way it works. But in year two, the earnings loss benefit must pay because even if it could take the, earnings, uh, the CISIP program into account, it can't take the cost of living into account. Why? Because there was a law saying they can't. They're breaking the law right now. Okay, I've looked at many veterans' uh, earnings loss benefit statements, and I have yet to see one where they have not taken the cost of living into account. Now think about that for a second. You have the law. The law says you can't do it. But yet they do it on a systemic scale. So now I believe they're kind of locked into, they don't want to admit that they're doing it because if they admit they're doing it, they'll have to fix it. If they have to fix it, they're going to have to pay people back. If they have to pay people back, well, the government doesn't like to admit that they're wrong ever. So they've got to eat that. And then they might, because these are both piece of my contracts, they might have to pay huge punitive damages. <laughs> they can't say they haven't been informed. I've told them about this many times. It might be time to simply sue the bastards because they can't even be trusted to do exactly what they put into the contract themselves or into the law themselves. You see, in contract law, there's a principle called contra profitorum or something like that. And uh, it basically says that whatever is written there by the person who writes the contract physically if it can be interpreted another way, then it's going to be read against the person who wrote it. Now, it seems to me that <clears throat> I'm coming across a widespread attitude with the government of Canada that they think, because they wrote it, that they have the last say. But I liken it to an analogy I came up with. If two people are going to share something and the people want to make sure that they both get the exact same half. I've seen it in movies and TV and maybe it's just common sense that they say you cut it 
and I get to choose. So the person that's cutting it will be as fair as possible because the other person gets the first choice. Now to me that's a perfect analogy of the contra profitorum. And it's also in the Interpretation Act, because in the Interpretation Act of Canada, we have uh, a section, I do believe is eight, but I'm not going to look it up. But they say that uh, every law is deemed remedial, which means it's meant to remedy a problem. And it's to be read in a broad and generous manner in which to achieve the purpose for which it was made. So the cost of living allowance clawback exception to the general clawback rule is supposed to give the person a little bit of incentive not much of an incentive but a little bit of incentive to have the money taken into account in a clawback and not kick up a stink at least to get to keep cost living but you know they're not doing the incentive i've had at least one person in the government say that to me and the problem is is they're relying on what's on paper on paper, if you and I, well not me because I know different, but if you looked at the cost of living clause in the CISA policy, and if you looked at the new Veterans Charter Regulation, Section 27.3, you would presume that the law binds your hands. Contract law is law. Statutory law is law. And you would think what's written on paper would be what's happening in the real world. But it's not. I'll give you an example from my case. In my case, I had $1,018 a month in Canada Pension Plan Disability. But when I contacted Manulife, the administrator for the CISA program, I found out they were taking $1,073. I then informed them that they were in breach of the contract, to which they did nothing. This was years ago. Then I checked with the Reserve Force Pension Plan, and I found out they were taking too much there as well. So now I have two different things being deducted by way of clawback from the CISA policy. And they tell me, you know, they tried to come up with, if I can recall exactly, because i got a good memory. Crystal Anderson tried to tell me, oh yeah, well, we have a very complex formula that does this, this, that, and that, and the other thing, an algorithm here, blah, 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 fucking blah. Probably shouldn't curse. I might get some kind of uh, 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 NC-17 rating or something, but hey. So I told Christopher, no, you hang the hell on. I'll substitute hell for that F word. If you think that's funny, I'm trying to use a sense of humor to uh, stop the pain a bit. But uh, basically, uh, I said, hang on now, buddy. If you're taking more than the original award was made you're definitely in breach of the contract i don't need to know the formula i don't need to know anything else but what are the consequences of your action too bad he said well too bad you're stuck with it you can't sue you were part of the manuse case the manuse case had a cost of living uh allowance provision in the settlement and because you were part of the case, you're a shit out of luck, he said. I said, okay, I'll see about that. And I called McKenna Cooper. I think I spoke to Dan Wallace. There were two lead lawyers. Dan Wallace's name comes to mind, so I'm going to use his name. Whichever one of the two lead lawyers that it was. I explained the situation. I said that 
the person that manual life, Christopher Anderson, to be clear, so in case he wants to try to sue me for defamation or anything. I said, you know, Chris Frenchman tells me that I'm bound by the settlement of the cost of living thing. I said, you know, no one ever really explained the cost of living allowance adjustment problem for the CISA program and the pension I pension. So, you know, I, I looked it up a bit, and I think here's what happened from my piecing it together. I said, Dan, if it was Dan. I said, if CISA was $2,000 a month and the pension act pension was $1,000 a month, the way they were doing it was they would take $2,000 minus the $1,000 clawback and then add the cost of living from the CISA program, which is capped at 2%, which is another whole story, another whole podcast, how ridiculous that is then you would get $20 more a month. But I said what they should have done was put the cost of living on the gross amount instead of the net amount. And they should have had $40 as the payment, and then you take away the, the cost of living, or the pension act pension of 1000 And the person would have ended up with $1,040 instead of $1,020. And to which the other person said, yes, you have it exactly right. That is 100% what happened. Then I explained what I was talking about with the cost of living adjustment and the clawed back amount being taken into account. And uh, he said, no, that's an entirely different thing. So, you know, that guy at uh, Manulife, he was wrong. Dead wrong. Now, I've been trying to use this for years. And I haven't sued because, I mean, each person, you're not going to sue on that. It's such a small amount. I worked it out in my case. It was about $450, $500. For a couple of years. But you know, it is a classic class action. And it's a classic class action where the punitive damages might ensue. Because peace of mind is one of the objects of, if not the only object of, the CISA program. <clears throat> now, all of that, and anybody who's been listening to this probably already knows about my videos, my stories, my columns, all of the different things, my incessant posting on Facebook, my tweets. I've been trying to get this stuff fixed for years. They haven't been listening. The thing is, one of these days is going to come back to haunt them. And I'm trying to make that sooner rather than later. So to clue up this one, the cost of living allowance that's supposed to be taken into account by the other party. After year one, you have to get a small payment from Veterans Affairs. There is no question, even at 75% apiece, because of the cost of living factor not being allowed to be taken into account by both, despite the fact that they want to only pay one, they are legally required by the law they wrote to make two payments. Now, that sort of became moot in October of 2016 because the government increased the amount for the earnings loss benefit to 90%. So this is a very timely problem that it ought not to be, you know, coming up right now because you get both automatically on medical release. But for a period between 2006 and 2016, there was a time that when they thought they only could make one payment, they were supposed to make two. Oh. I just posted on Facebook what 
is likely to be seen as almost something that would call for my arrest for sedition. However, the way I look at it <clears throat> is if a country is willing to hurt the person who is willing to die for it, it's not much of a country. So, if the government passes a law like the Veterans Wellbeing Act Regulation, Section 27.3, that says they will not take the cost of living of a clawback into account, then it should follow the rule of law that it wrote. The law that it wrote says don't do it, so don't do it. And in my post, I showed it was only a few dollars per month per alleged benefit. However, it's the principle behind the thing. You know, if we can't trust the person to obey what they say they're going to do, they're, they're not trustworthy. Like, it's not the money. It's the fact that they broke you know, the duty of loyalty. You know, loyalty goes both ways. There's the duty of loyalty that a soldier has to the country, and the country owes them a duty of loyalty. To be honest, I was really iffy about whether I should post that particular uh, message. I called it Operation Cola, Operation Cost of Living Allowance. And I'm asking any veteran in receipt of the CISA policy 901-102 and or the earnings loss benefits should compare the amounts of clawback year over year. If the clawback amount is higher in the year following the initial award, then the disabled veteran has been disrespected by the law of contract. That's the way I wrote it. Section 24B and Section 44B of the policy is being ignored by the D&D manualized CISA people. And the statutory law, the new Veterans Charter Regulation, Section 27.3, for the laws allegedly made by Parliament. Now, the reason I put that in there is that I have this theory that becomes more and more apparent that I'm right every day, is that the people that are actually in power are not the people that we elect. They're the ones that get in trouble when we get mad with them. But the ones that are really in power are the people that actually administer the programs. And in this case, what's happening is... The laws are being ignored. And what does that say for our lawmakers? What does that say for our country? So basically, the ball is now in the government of Kansas court. I believe I've been playing softball all along. I've been taking it easy on them. But today, aside from this one, which is kind of explosive, I believe, I also sent an email to the Minister of National Defense. And I told him that he might go to jail unless he stops the clawbacks. And the reason I said that is, well, the law prohibits it in Canadian Forces Superannuation Act, Section 83, for example. And yet the government ignores the very law that it wrote. In the exact same manner that the cost of living laws are being violated. So it doesn't do us much good to have people write laws that you're then going to go ahead and ignore what kind of message does that send to society? It tells me that the government of Canada is corrupt and, well, only for I really don't believe in revolutions. You know, stuff like this can get into a situation where people feel they're so desperate that they would do desperate things. So again, I do not call for a revolution, but I do call for the government to start obeying the law right away. You know, an immediate action.
let me tell you the story of Tom Anderson. He was a young private in Croatia in 1994 who just happened to go back on a second mission because he had just gotten home and then he decided you know they were short of people so he volunteered to go back again and when he was over there this time he was driving along the road in an Iltis which is a Jeep type vehicle a really poorly built vehicle not built to withstand the three anti-tank mines that were stacked up on the road his Iltis went over that and it blew off two legs and took out an eye. Now how did Canada reward Tom for this loss? From 1996 to 2012 it rewarded him by not paying him the long-term disability insurance that he should have gotten under the Service Income Support Insurance Plan, Policy 901-102. Then <coughs> After it got caught stealing from this man who gave so much for Canada, they used tax to mitigate their damages. So, for example, how I, you know, got to know Tom a bit. I don't know him personally, but I did, you know, meet him on Facebook and through my advocacy stuff, especially on taxes. So I was trying to help Tom with his taxes, and I was looking at his tax return from the CISIP class action lawsuit. And he sent me a picture of his tax return, and I saw that on line 260, the taxable income part, they showed that he had a $145,000 taxable income. By the time you take off the legal fees and the personal exemption, all the different things that you can take off, and reduced the you know, $600,000 settlement. <clears throat> it got knocked down to about a quarter of the payment that had to be subject to tax. Now, I plan to attack the way the government handled things with veterans, especially on taxes, a lot, because I used to be a tax collector. So they had $145,000 on that, and I often ask people using the discovery method of teaching, how much money do you think would be in a, a good marginal tax rate to charge against Tom? Nobody has yet to answer like 110% because the government of Canada charged Tom not only two legs and an eye, but $160,000 taxes on $145,000 income. Now has that been fixed? Have they refunded him the money? that they shouldn't have taken in the first place? Because let me tell you something. Income Tax Act, Section 61F, is the alleged authority that they use to tax the alleged income. However, <clears throat> as I said, they never paid him from 2012 back to 1996. So for 16 years, Tom did not have his two legs or his eye. And he did not have his long-term disability insurance as well, because, you know, the Army, the Canadian Forces, it had a long-term disability insurance, but it was plowing back the value of the Pension Act pension that Tom got because of his injury. <laughs> so we have a young soldier, disabled, and then unable to continue his uh, career. 
And then the army throws him to the curb, and then they save on, uh, against his best interest by taking into account the very pension that they gave him, awarded him. Now the thing is about all this skullduggery is that it eventually got caught because of the Dennis Manu's class action lawsuit. But the thing is, it should never have happened. There's a thing called the Bradburn Rule that I keep harping about, and it says that you can get an indemnity plus your non-indemnity insurance without violating any legal principles. In fact, it should be encouraged because it encourages people to get the insurance that they bought and paid for. While I'm talking about Tom and the way the government of Canada treated him after his sacrifice and service, sacrifice of his body, is that there's a case called Hennig, at least I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Hotel Echo November, November, India, Gulf. Hennig. So in that case, the insurers of Canada, the, uh, you know, kind-hearted people, you know, I'm being sarcastic, I hope your sarcasm meter's on, but uh, <clears throat> I call the Army's long-term disability insurance Manulife, administers it. I call them the insurer from hell with a hashtag. Hashtag you know uh, capital I insurer capital F from capital H hell. Because I got the idea from the uh, Witten versus Pilot Supreme Court of Canada 2005 case where this really nasty insurance company did everything they could to screw over the people that should have got their insurance when their house burned down. But I don't think that that company is as bad as a as a corporation that aids the government of Canada in screwing over someone who gave actual two limbs and an eye, an organ for the country. So I think the insurer from hell is, uh, is a very good title to give these Son of a bitches. However, getting forward, going to forward a bit, <clears throat> I traced the problem to a thing called the qualifying retroactive lump sum payment. As I said, I'm a really good detective, you know. So, uh, what it was is that back in the 90s, somebody came up with an idea that if people get a lump sum payment, it might be a good idea to not put all of the money in one year because it might cause excessive taxes. So they figured they would allow the person to spread it out over the years. <clears throat> now, if you're with me so far, that sounds pretty good. It's better than having it all put in one year and making it appear as if you have a really high income in that one year. <laughs> but uh, the problem is, is that, uh, well, first of all, they shouldn't have taxed it in the first place. I got off topic a bit. My train of thought got lost. But what I was saying about Income Tax Act Section 61F, it has two statutory conditions. You see, back in 1966, they had a thing called the Carter Royal Commission, and the Carter Royal Commission recommended that all forms of uh, money transfers be taxed. Canada didn't accept that, but Canada did put long-term disability on the uh, tax block, and they implemented Section 61F. <clears throat> but they didn't do it wholesale. They didn't say all long-term disability insurance was going to be taxed. They said that only if two statutory conditions were met. 
So according to the Income Tax Act, the payment has to be made periodically. And on that point, Tom was paid a lump sum. So this is why I was trying to help him in the first place. Okay, They should not have charged taxes at all against the $600,000. Because if you don't meet the condition that was put there by Parliament, then you're shit out of luck, buddy. Now, the other part is that the employer has to pay part of the premium. So if those two conditions are met, then the government can tax a wage loss replacement plan, it's called. But the thing is, <clears throat> even on that, Tom paid either 50 or 85% of the premium was paid by the government because up until from 1971 to 1990, it was 50-50. The government paid 50%. On behalf of the soldier, and the soldier paid 50% by way of payroll deductions after 1982 when Queen's Regulations and Orders 208.53 was established by Treasury Board, by the way, not Parliament. So anyway, my point being is that even if the government pays 100% of the premiums like it did for me on the reserve side, that was earned in service by Tom and myself, and therefore the whole premise that a person should be paying taxes on the CISA program is insane. One of my key points, in fact, is that using the 2009 tax year, for example, and the audit uh, information I have from KPMG, which was canceled, by the way, because they said I had no money, which I find suspicious. But they said in 2009 that there was about $40 million paid out to disabled veterans in 2009 under the Army's long-term disability insurance. So the government of Canada spent $40 million paying out money to disabled veterans like Tom, and they did it through Manulife. Now at that point, you should be asking, why didn't they pay it directly? Why is the taxpayer of Canada having to pay for an extra layer of administrative burden on red tape? But regardless, <clears throat> my point is, they shouldn't have taxed Tom. Getting back to the qualifying retroactive lump sum problem, some enterprising jerk, and I'd like to substitute another word uh, beginning with F and ending in K, maybe ER actually add to it, uh, they decided that the government of Canada shouldn't be out the time value of the money that should have been paid in taxes because of the qualifying retroactive lump sum payment. So they decided to add what's called a deemed tax under Section 120.31 of the Income Tax Act. I ever tell you guys, whoever's listening to this, I have a head for numbers. I'm pretty good at remembering them. Anyway, so they brought in this law and they said, hey, you know, Canada's out all this money, which is total garbage, really, because the Income Tax Act is designed to act on an annual basis. In Section 5, it talks about uh, at the end of the calendar year, you're supposed to pay taxes on the income when the year ends on December 31st, and you had to file your taxes by the 30th of April the following year. Now, in today's modern society, I mean, you could probably require it really fast compared to that, in theory, because, I mean, people can get their stuff a lot quicker electronically and stuff. But the government set up the tax system to be in arrears. You would always do it behind time, and you'd file your taxes about, you know, by the 30th of April after the year ended on the 31st of December. So the whole premise of disqualifying retroactive lump sum payment, it appears to me that they set up a system 
that they tried to make it look good, that they were helping everybody out, but really it appears to me to be a tax grab. And here's why. You can call it a tax, but the clear intent is to punish the person who deprives Canada of the time value of the taxes that should have been taxed. Now, I have a solution for the government of Canada. If you want to punish the person who caused Tom to file late, then you write a law that instead of deeming a qualifying retroactive lump sum penalty disguised as a tax, you deem the person who didn't pay as the person ultimately responsible for the time value of the money. You know, why should you hold the innocent victim, the person who got blown up in Croatia? It wasn't his fault that he couldn't file his taxes. The government of Canada had to actually be sued in order to make them pay because they steadfastly said that they didn't have a legal requirement to pay. Why didn't they have a legal requirement to pay? Well, <clears throat> the government of Canada put into the contract of insurance that Tom had that they would take into account the Pension Act pension. Now, that kind of goes against the law. There's no kind of about it. Because the government of Canada also wrote Pension Act Section 30 and Financial Administration Act Section 67. So, McInnes Cooper, the firm that handled the case for Tom and the 10,000 other people that were in the case, 10 or 14, sometimes numbers change. But uh, they brought up in the initial statement of claim that the government of Canada broke Pension Act Section 30. And they were entirely right, 100% right. Not one doubt about it in my mind. But they did miss the boat a little bit. They missed the boat because Financial Administration Act Section 67 was also broken. I happen to know that because I read a lot of law cases. And the Marzetti versus Marzetti Supreme Court of Canada case in 1994, it mentioned that when Canada wants to keep someone from intercepting a crown debt and a payment to a disabled veteran in place of a tort lawsuit is certainly a crown debt. So there's supposed to be a general immunity in Financial Administration Act, Section 67. And there's supposed to be specific immunities like Pension Act, Section 30. So Canada put a two-tiered defense against any creditor, including itself, from taking the money into account. Now, it would have been really nice if the government obeys the laws that it makes, but... That's one of my persistent theories. My, You know, it's always happening. Every time I turn around and I look something up, they're looking at their self-interest ahead of the interest of a disabled veteran. So continuing on, I had to take a short break. I was afraid the dog would start barking at a dog passing by in the third window. Even though I don't uh, have an official service dog, I got a beagle we got in 2014 Clara, named after uh, the companion in Doctor Who. <clears throat> I love sci-fi. Anyway, so all this stuff with Tom, you would think the government would try to be helping to fix all these things he has. Oh, no. Oh, no. He got cut off by Manulife from the CISIP program. He is owed, I believe about $20,400 for the increase in the earnings loss benefit from October of 2016. And I'll describe how that happened, how I think this is what happened, and I'm pretty damn sure I'm right. 
Okay, so back around the time I was trying to help Tom with his taxes, there was this earnings loss benefit increase going through. So Tom asked me because, you know, he was he knew I was good with spreadsheets and numbers and figuring things out. He said, Matt, how much should I get? <clears throat> I said, well, Tom, how much are you getting in CISA? He said, about $4,000 a month. Well, I said, the new payment, uh, the increase, is between is about 20% because the old rate was 75%. The new rate is 90%, 15 over 75. The increase in the from the old to the new is 1 over 5, which is 20%. So 20% of $4,000 is $800. So, you know, I told him he should expect about 800 bucks a month from Veterans Affairs Canada. Instead of that, lo and behold, they sent him a check for $1.40 a month. $1.40. Now, I think that's scandalous. They haven't fixed it yet. They refuse to admit that this is a problem. Just like they refuse to admit, admit every, all these things are problems that I find. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot tell someone you're going to give them 20% more and then give them zero, really. There's no 20% in $1.40. He was getting $4,000 a month. You know, you would think that he had to get a fairly substantial amount. However, Tom's not alone. When I was looking all this stuff up for the double dip clawback, I saw that 165 veterans were paid $1.39. So that comes to roughly what Tom was getting. So whatever they're doing, they're doing it to more than just Tom. And I think that someone should go to jail for this stuff. You're not supposed to do this to people like Tom who lost two legs and an eye. You're just simply supposed to give them the money you're owing them. Right. Now, podcasts are something new to me, and hopefully I'll get better and not have any of these pauses and clearing my throat. I don't exactly have the best of health, so I always have a sore throat. <coughs> Gastro reflux or something's called, I believe, it's part of it. But... Uh, Really what we need here in Canada is we need uh, to respect the veterans' rights. Don't think that they need support and assistance. Basically pay them, compensate them for their injury, and don't keep invading their privacy. Right? For example, the uh, Service Income Support Insurance Plan really puts Tom Trudringer, at one point they cut him off because he didn't submit his tax return or something. Why the hell did they have to give him their tax, his tax returns? And the service income support insurance plan is a non-indemnity and tributary insurance plan. So therefore, it does not own the right to clawback because that's just the way the law is towards non-indemnity payments. They're not being paid to compensate you for anything. They're being paid because you had a contract of insurance and the formula stated that you had to get this many percent. And there's no such thing as income replacement, for example, which is why, you know, I put out a podcast attacking the Pension for Life's new name for the earnings loss benefit. Back in 2006, they said that the uh, 
earnings loss benefit was an income replacement program. Well, why don't they just use the name that the Canada Revenue Agency uses? In Income Tax Bill 428, they state that all income replacement type benefits, accident, disability insurances, whatever the name, they're going to call them all wage loss replacement plans. But the thing is, no matter how you name it, the fact of the matter is, they're not income. Insurance can never be income, okay? I'm probably spoiling the tax chapter. But in tort law, the compensation principle applies, and basically the compensation principle states that any injured per person can only be paid up to 100% of the amount that they lost. So the Income Tax Act is designed to tax a profit. So if you want to have uh, something taxed as income, then you have to basically achieve profit. Now if a soldier gets injured in war, they're only getting 75% of what their income was previously. So how can you look at them and say they're getting... Uh, making a profit. You know, I mean, they didn't ask to get injured. They were doing their duty. Tom was doing his duty when he was driving along. He was the driver for the, uh, for an officer. And the officer, I don't think, got hurt much, if at all. But Tom got hurt severely. Now, despite that, he's actually worked a bit. I mean, I know all this stuff about Tom because I did a story or two in print form. And one of my ideas was actually to... Uh, write to do the uh, story and just read it off for a podcast. I mean, I might do that in the future. And I had another idea to talk to Tom or to get some of his uh, information, get him to do a quote for this very podcast. Maybe we'll do a follow-up or something in the interview. Captain Matt Edwards retired here with another one of my... Uh exciting uh, podcast. I say that as kind of a joke. I was doing all these videos over the last uh, three, four, five years, and uh, and I don't ever think that I'm an exciting person, so I'm a kind of a boring person, so I, I'd always be poking fun at myself. But you know, today is not that funny as far as I'm concerned. I was talking to a senior bureaucrat for the Office of the Veterans Affairs, Office of the Veterans Ombudsman Office this afternoon, Dwayne Shepard. And he shocked me when he asked me to take a look at and probably do up a briefing for them on the repeal of Veterans Wellbeing Act Regulations, Section 27.3. Frankly, I was shocked. First thing I said to him is it appears to me that they're trying to obstruct justice because I've been squawking about the cost of living factor not being... Uh, administered properly where the law states that it cannot be taken into account and the government of Canada has been taken into account and harming the veteran. So the first thing that came to my mind is these lousy son of a bitches are trying to get away with it by repealing the law. And then they'll probably try to fool people by using the same argument they tried in the earnings loss benefit and the Pension Act pension uh, mess. To the best of my knowledge, their official position on that was it was legal because until we repealed that law, 
it was legal and we didn't do anything wrong. So there was a section, 22A, of the Veterans Wellbeing Act regulations that said they had the authority to bring into, uh, bring into account the Pension Act pension as income and to reduce the payment for the earnings loss benefit. Now, as I speak about that, it reminds me, it's slightly off topic because I was going to talk about the cost of living factor, but, but that just reminded me that when you look at it, the only thing they were allowed to take into account was the Pension Act pension. But one of the veterans I'm trying to help, Sean Corrine, leading seaman retired, Sean Corrine, when I was looking at the way they deducted the value of the Pension Act pension from him in 2006 to reduce his amount to zero, well, they grossed it up for taxes. Now, the new point I thought about, which... I know it's wrong that they did it, but, you know, grossing up for taxes, that wasn't included in the law. The Veterans Wellbeing Act regulations said that they could take the value of the Pension Act pension into account, but it did not mention that they should gross it up for taxes. So as I speak about that, I'm probably going to have to call the veteran later or message him or something. And uh, he's the only one that I know of, but, you know, it's fresh in my mind because today I also spoke to a Veterans Affairs Canada employee who is a very intelligent and reasonable person compared to the rest of the bunch of bastards that I've been talking to because when I was describing uh, the problem that Sean Lewis, uh, corporal retired Sean Lewis was having where they were taking into account his Great West Life and his Canada Pension Plan, well, the Canada Pension, uh, the Great West Life Plan that he has is tax-free. So I was curious, I didn't want to insult him too much, so I said, how long have you been having this file? Like, I was trying to ease into it. And he said, he only got it recently. I said, well, that's great, because, you know, he's been getting their earnings lost since 2011. And in theory, if they followed the same procedure they did with the Sean Kareen veteran I've been trying to help, then they would have taken the tax-free amount paid under the Great West Life Plan, and they would have grossed it up for taxes. But, they're doing two different things to two different veterans, and that's very inconsistent, very bad. You shouldn't do two different things to two different veterans. That's terrible. But what's really nasty is taking the Pension Act pension into account and grossing it up for taxes. I don't know why in the hell they do that, because Income Tax Act Section 811D says that you can't do that because it's not income. So I really don't know where these people get their ethics from. I don't know if they have any upbringing with their children, uh, when their children with their mother and father, hopefully instilling some uh, values. But to take the uh, Pension Act pension uh, capital payment and gross it up for taxes when capital isn't the same thing as income, it's just wrong. And I think it's a lawsuit waiting to happen. So, I mean, um, that's something I'll probably look into in the future. Now, in the meantime, even though I'm saying they repealed the cost of living protection on the clawback amount, I mean, it isn't beyond the realm of uh, possibilities, I guess, that they might have put it into another part of the regulations that it's not really repealed but just moved or something like that. Because, for example, they did get rid of Section a of the Veterans Wellbeing Act regulations because it used to say repealed there. So whenever they were doing an update, they just left the old one there. But in the most recent iterations of the Veterans Wellbeing Act regulations, they flat out removed the old reference that said repealed. 
which once again seems to me to be undemocratic, to be trying to obstruct justice. It seems like they want to take off the face of the official record the fact that they used to do it a different way, that they used, not, used to take away the Pension Act pension value from the earnings loss benefit, but they're actually trying to distance themselves there too, I think, because they're trying to call the earnings loss benefit the income replacement benefit. Now, today, I, I sent a message to a Sean Berea, a veteran uh, critic. You know, he's a person that's uh, always trying to advocate for veterans. I've only spoken to him once or twice, and uh, I correspond with him a good bit, emails or messages and stuff like that. But I sent a, a message to Sean because... Uh, <coughs> You know what, I kind of had to pause this because I lost my train of thought. So I can't recall what I sent the message to Sean Berea was, but one of the key things that I've been preaching to the choir, hopefully if the people who are listening to me believe, with me, uh, believe in what I'm saying, <clears throat> one of the things that I'm trying to say is when you catch someone do something wrong, they can't uh, very well get up and you know have the moral authority, moral high ground. They can't say that we're doing this you know, because it's good. If I catch you doing something bad, well, you're acting in bad faith. There's a thing that I've been pushing called the clean hands doctrine. And if I find someone's doing something wrong when I'm in a dispute with them, I win. So, I think it might have been I was saying, Hey, Sean, you know, we got them caught when they're using this uh, cost of living thing. And they're doing it wrong. They're acting outside the law. They're acting outside the law. They're acting in bad faith. They're acting in bad faith. Anything that we have when we have a dispute with them, we win. On the other hand, if this is as bad as I think it is, and they are trying to make it look like they're doing nothing wrong and they're manipulating the law to fit their goals, and they're not the elected representatives. They're not the people we vote for. I mean, these are regulatory laws. They are not laws that are passed by Parliament. Now, we vote for members of Parliament. We put them into power. They are supposed to govern responsibly. They're not supposed to just get into in the power after winning an election and say, I'm an elected king. I can do what I want. Because what this boils down to, to me, is I think the government has lost control of the bureaucrats. The bureaucrats, I've been spoken off about this cost of living problems for so long, somebody finally noticed it, and they're trying to get rid of the evidence. Well, you know, trying to get rid of the evidence to stop an investigation from happening is obstruction of justice, criminal code, section 1392. The reason I know that, and I might butcher the name, is the Wasinski case or something like that, Supreme Court of Canada, 1994-1995. And there was this lawyer who lied during an investigation because he didn't want to get caught. And then after that was revealed... They charged him with obstruction of justice, and they said that the investigation is a very important part of the of the process, the judicial process, the you know the way to get to truth and equity and fairness and all that. So to lie during that uh, at the very beginning of the stage, which is a very important stage, because if you actually convince someone not to do an investigation, then you don't really have very much hard work to do anymore to continue to lie, do you? Because you have actually thwarted any attempt at being held accountable for your actions. Now, a lot of people hear me, if they actually listen to what I'm saying, and they might think I'm full of shit. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, I'm a very uh, intelligent person. I'm also a very idealistic person. And I kind of believe in the rule of democracy where it says that if we elect people to govern us in good, uh, 
in good standing, good faith, you know, do the right thing, be reasonable, then you're not supposed to do the kind of things that they do. For example, this very thing that I was talking about, I was talking to someone in the government a while ago, and they tried to convince me that even though the value of the account of the pension plan disability was taken into account, that at least you get the cost of living factor left alone. To which, well, they don't do that. They do it on paper from 2006 to 2018 when they repeal it on paper. The veteran getting the earnings loss benefit was given a break, you would call it, perhaps. But you know, what's the good of having a break in law if they don't actually follow it? comes down to inconsistency, poor training, and competence. I could go on and on. And you know, this bit, this audio recording podcast is much different than the earlier ones because I got my dander up about this. I told a senior officer, the veterans ombudsman guy, this could quite possibly be criminal. And he probably thinks I'm out to lunch. I don't know if it's criminal, but I think it could be. And I also have read cases about criminal cases being when does the police have to investigate. And in 2002 cases in 2013, Supreme Court of Canada, they said, <clears throat> where's the defect that when a constellation of evidence provides proof that a crime is possible, not probable, not more than 50%, but more than zero, less than 50%. So when a constellation of evidence and factors uh, shows that a crime is possible, a police investigation should start. Now they can always stop it later. When they gather more evidence, they can see they can see that there's no justification to waste their money and time pursuing a dead end. And they don't have to tell anybody about it if they start an investigation. I mean, if you're investigating a criminal offense, if you tell the person you're investigating them that you're investigating them, well, they could take off. So they could start, look into something, stop, drop it, move on, do the next case, and not tell anybody. I mean, that's just policing. So even though I haven't been, you know, talking as much about the criminal side of the law, I've been researching a lot of this the last few years. So anyway, I think I've vented enough, and if what I think has happened has really happened, and I haven't missed anything, because by the way, I went back, I did several things. After I spoke to the Office of the Veterans Ombudsman, um, whatever, I don't know his title, I then called the Chief uh, Canadian Forces Morale and Welfare Services, CFMWS. And I know because the CISA program is a copy of the, well, switch it around. The Earnings Loss Benefit is a copy of the CISA program. And the CISA program had this clawback uh, exemption in Section 24B. So I'm kind of curious if they're trying to cover it up on both sides, because I know that the CISA people don't do it too. I know it because it happened to me. I called up Manulife one time. I said, listen, guys, how much are you taking out of my uh, my payment for the account uh, of the pension plan disability? The guy said uh, $1,073. I said, then you're clearly in breach of the contract because Section 44B of the policy, I'm under Section 44B because I'm a reservist. I said, Section 44B clearly prohibits your action so you know send me money you're taking 55 dollars a month too much but he tried to bullshit me he tried to say our computer does this the formula the algorithm does that i said hey christopher stop all i need to know 
is that the policy says you can't take anything but the original amount. The original amount was 1018 You're taking 1073 You're in breach of the contract. And I hung up. Now, a month or so later, I called him up and did the same thing, a song and dance, with the uh, Reserve Force pension plan that I get. This time, he tried to be cute with me. And he said something like, uh, when I said, how much did I get? That the, How much were you taking into account at start? He said, well, uh, what we, you know, again, I'm kind of going blank here. I'm kind of upset, but he tried to waffle it, right? And whatever he tried to say, I said, that's not the question I asked you. I asked you, no, what he said was, well, we started to take it off at such and such. And then I cut in and said, listen, Christopher, I don't care about how you're working up to it. I asked you a direct question, how much are you taking off right now? So then he told me the amount, and it wasn't the same as it was at the beginning. So anybody who's listening to this, and if you're a veteran and you're getting CISIP or earnings loss benefit, to see if they owe you money and then see if they're a bunch of crooks, you basically got to look at however much they're climbing back for whatever they're taking off. Look at the original award. If they're taking off anything other than the original award, well, they're in breach of contract. You can sue them civilly, or they're in breach of the statutory law and the earnings loss benefit side well you can probably sue them civilly and you might build involve the police and get some satisfaction seeing those people go to jail but you know that might be a bit of a stretch it probably won't happen but for the meantime though repealing this law is just wrong think about the effect of it what they're saying is that they don't want to pay this exemption anymore because I'm assuming that sooner or later that soon they're going to realize that I'm right, they're wrong, and it'll get fixed. Now, what they did was repeal it. So, because they repealed that law, even if I win in the future, they won't have to exempt it. Now, I got news for them. That was only a way for me to make the public aware of the problem of these lying sexist shit. Okay. After I got this out there in the public's attention, in the media, somehow, and let the court of public opinion take effect, I was planning on attacking the rest of it. Because the clawback itself is totally illegal. Section 9213 of the Constitution Act says that property and civil rights are a provincial matter. The earnings loss benefit was a federal law. It's now called the income replacement. It's still a federal law. And because property and civil rights are a provincial jurisdiction, then the federal government cannot trench into fed, uh, civil uh, provincial matters. Property and civil rights are provincial exclusively. So the fact of the matter is these people are idiots. They don't realize that they've written an unconstitutional law. The whole new veteran's charter, as far as I'm concerned, is unconstitutional. Now, nobody's, nobody's really attacked that. And today, I happen to be writing writing a, well, I wrote an introduction to it, but I was kind of curious about the Paul B. Vickery, Department of Justice lawyers, who said that the government doesn't owe a duty to the veteran, an obligation. So I looked it up, and uh, I was kind of shocked to see that they said, basically, veterans are supposed to be happy with whatever the government uh, doles out to them. I mean, I'm shocked to read it. I mean, I don't know if I was right into it or I missed that story or whatever. So I've got a lot of stuff on my plate. But to think that we have elected kings, I mean, you vote someone in and then once they get in, they do whatever they want. That's just not the way democracy is supposed to work. 
The way it's supposed to work is we give our delegated power to the elected member of parliament, who then governs responsibly and makes reasonable laws. So the part about the cost of living being taken into not being taken into account, that's a very reasonable law. But you know what would be more reasonable? Taking out all of them goddamned clawbacks. Good morning, Captain Matt Edward Retired here with another one of my short podcasts. Going to make this one about the cost of living mess that I recently discovered last night. An idea popped into my head about a veteran by the name of Sean Corrine. And I was thinking about the 90% earnings loss benefit he's supposed to get in October of 2016. And I had thought about his earnings loss benefit statement from 2006. And I had the figures that showed he made, well, not made, that back showed him as having 4482 in salary, military salary, they said, to base it on the earnings loss benefit of 75%. Now, I've been working on an issue called the double-dip clawback, where the Canadian Forces Pension and the Canada Pension Plan are being deducted by both the Department of National Defense and Veterans Affairs. And because of that, I have an earnings loss benefit statement, a picture of that in my possession. So I know that they used $4,885 in 2016 as his military salary brought forward from the date of his release in 2003. But I put the amount into the Bank of Canada's inflation factor uh, calculator, and it came out to $5,245 or so. Now, that's a difference of about $400, and 90% of $400 is $360. So Veterans Affairs has been robbing this man of about, you know, $4,300 a year. Now that was in 2016, and here we are in 2019. So it's about three years at, you know, $5,000, uh, about $5,000 a year, $4,000, $5,000 a year. So they owe the man about twelve to $15,000. So why do they keep doing this to us? Like, I'm not getting any of these things, but I don't like to see injustice. So here I am trying to do my part by making a podcast, which nobody might listen to, and then my efforts would have been in vain. However, we are thinking about doing a protest next week. I don't know if we'll add this new issue to it, because it shouldn't have happened, okay? How do I know it shouldn't have happened? Well, the Veterans Wellbeing Act Regulation, Section 21, it had a cap of 2% on bringing forward the military salary from the veteran when they released from the military of 2%. Now, in September of 2016, the government removed that cap. But because they removed it, we know they shouldn't have put it there in the first place. Because if it was legitimate, they would have left it there. So why should they get away with using that cap of 2%, even though they took it out of the law as of 30th of September 2016. So they timed it like conveniently that the earnings loss benefit of 90% started in October of 2016. They removed the cap in September of 2016. So they'll probably look at everybody that if I complain about this, they'll say, well, we did it according to the law at the time. Well, my question is not, did they do it in accordance with the law? 
but should the law have been there? The answer is clearly no, because the government repealed that. So, are they trying to make us do a lawsuit every time something like this happens? I don't think that's very fair. It's not a very good use of the justice system to require us to have to sue them every time they do something wrong. It would be much better for them not to do anything wrong in the first place, and then we wouldn't have to sue. Now, would, we, would people have the right to sue the government on this? Because they'll say they did it in accordance with the law, so there was nothing wrong. Not if, you know, someone challenged the validity of the law itself. If someone has that law struck down in, say, a judicial review, then the Veterans Affairs people would have no justification in doing the cost of living adjustment limited at 2%. Unlike many things in the policy, uh, in the law, I can't seem to find that this one was a copy of the Service Income Support Insurance Plan. Many of the things in the Earnings Loss Benefit System are a copy of the Service Income Support Insurance Plan Policy 901-102. However, I reviewed that policy this morning and I did not see anything of a similar nature for bringing forward a military member's salary on release to today. This seems to be solely a Veterans Affairs problem. And they seem to be only thinking about themselves when they put a cap of 2% on it. I was talking to the Deputy Minister's Office a lot on this issue, and I was telling them, and I've been telling the Veterans Ombudsman as well, what the government should do is just say, what was your rank on release? And if the person was a corporal or a sergeant or a general, then you pay them 90% of the current pay, and I bet you a million dollars that it will come out to pretty close to the same thing as bringing forward the person's rank-based pay on release to today by using the Consumer Price Index. If someone were to prove that to me, because I don't feel like doing all this work for them for free, someone should go ahead and do that, because I'm pretty sure that it will come out to pretty close to within 4% which is the significant difference uh, percentage, if something is within 4%, it's considered to be statistically insignificant. So I believe this is why in the federal government, as an example, they use 4% difference in the maximum rate of pay to determine if a person took a lateral move to a similar equivalent job, or if they had a promotion. Like if somebody moved from one pay grade to another pay grade, they were doing this job, now they're doing another job, they have certain rules. And if it's a promotion, well, you can't just simply give a person a promotion without a competition. But you can give a person an equivalent job without a competition that's considered a lateral move. So that's part of the reason I know so much about this, is because I was looking at a lot of this stuff from the public servant viewpoint. Anyway, I'm going to sign off for now. I just wanted to try to do something. I mean, uh, it's early in the morning here in Newfoundland. And I usually try to time my calls to various authority figures to 10.30 my time, 9 o'clock Ottawa time. And it's a bit too early. It's 9.45 local time, so I'm making a podcast. At least I'm trying to do my part. Good morning. Captain Matt Edwards retired here with another one of my short podcasts. At least I hope it's going to be short. 
I was looking up something because it was niggling me. I'm not sure if that's a Newfoundland word, but it's one that I use for a slight annoyance, niggling. And something in my mind was bothering me about the cost of living adjustment to the earnings loss benefit for a veteran by the name of Sean Kareen. Now, I'm planning on going on a small protest tomorrow with Sean, and I'm hoping to draw some media attention to the problems he's facing. And I just discovered one that I thought I never, I never saw it coming. No, I didn't. I was looking at the earnings loss benefit clawback in 2006, and they used the Pension Act pension and the Canadian Forces pension to reduce his earnings loss benefit to zero. They used $4,882.50 for the amount of his military salary. Now, I was looking at the amount that they used in 2016, and the obvious thing never struck me. In 2016, they decided to use 90% of the veteran's military salary. And for Sean, they used $4,885.50. Now, something about that was bugging me, but I never noticed it. Not until this morning. And now I'm physically ill. I'm sick to my stomach. Not because it's happening to me, but my government don't feel that they have to obey the laws they passed. You see, Veterans Wellbeing Act Regulation, Section 21, from 2006 to 2016, it adjusted the military member's military salary by a cost-of-living factor of 2% with a cap of 2% on the cost-of-living allowance. So the amount of money that they should have paid 90% on was about $5,284. Now that's if you didn't have a cap of 2%. But you know... I was thinking they were using $4,885.50 because they used a cap of 2%. But this morning when I was putting it into a spreadsheet and I was using the Bank of Canada inflation calculator, it struck me that they didn't use any inflationary factor. They simply took the amount of money that they said he would have gotten in 2006, 10 years previous to 2016, and with a $3 difference... Uh, $4,885 uh, in 2006 became $4,885 in 2016. Now, less than 4% is statistically insignificant. So now I have a, another case of one veteran where the law has been breached, and frankly, I'm getting sick of it. Okay, you had the cost of living allowance uh, exemption in section 27 brackets 3, of the Veterans Wellbeing Act regulations, and the government ignored that for Sean's case. And I'm sure they ignored it to everybody else. So they wrote a law and they ignored it. They also wrote a law about the bringing forward a military salary, you know, and they ignored that. So now how many times do they have to ignore the law for us to take this seriously? Because if we were breaking the law, there would be a much more serious response. For example, I don't think Sean will mind. I was trying to help him at the very start, but because of the Income Tax Act. So they were doing enforcement action on Sean, on his income tax, alleged taxes. And I was trying to help him out to get rid of those taxes, if I could, legally. And yet they're taking that money from him because they say he owes money, but at the same time they're breaking the law with respect to his compensation for his injury and service. 
frankly, this just shouldn't be happening. Every time the government does something like this, it detracts from the rule of law. If the listener wants to take anything from all of these rantings that I make, the government is not above the law. If the government didn't want to give the cost of living to the military salary, then the government should not have passed Veterans Wellbeing Act Regulation Section 21. If the government had not wanted to exempt the cost of living allowance factor on a clawback amount, then they could have left Section 27.3 out of the law. Now, in 2018, the government just did just that. They repealed Veterans Wellbeing Act Regulation Section 27.3 by repealing the whole section. Now, at the time, I thought that they took away the cost of living allowance authority, but now I realize that they moved it to Section 21. So Section 21 in the past was a simple section that all it did was adjust the military member's salary, say if it was 20 or 30 years ago, and it adjusted it to today by adding a cost of living. Now, frankly, if they don't do that, what's the point of even having that law? Overnight. Good morning. Captain Matt Edward retired here with another one of these short podcasts. At least I hope to keep it short. And I'll try to keep it a bit interesting. I won't try to put you to sleep, although maybe you can listen to these as you go to bed at night if you have trouble, you know, insomnia, sleeping. Then, you know, use my podcast to have my droning voice put you to sleep. I'm going to talk about how I often feel despondent after I find out that the government is doing this wrong and that wrong. It It's kind of a human condition. It's psychological. I often say I'm not a touchy-feely person and I don't like psychobabble. However, when the government of Canada, which is the authority figure in Canada, we give our elected power to the government. We elect members of parliament to represent us. But the government is not supposed to become elected kings. They're not supposed to get in there and say, I have an elected mandate, therefore I can do what I please. They're supposed to do the right thing. Now, in the last few days, I've discovered several things that have attacked what little trust I have left in my government. One of the things I discovered was that the cost of living allowance was not being properly adjusted to the military salary as per the Veterans Wellbeing Act. Regulation section 21.1. I've been talking about and looking into the cost of living adjustment on a clawback amount not being taken into account as per section 27.3 of the Veterans Wellbeing Act regulations. And I know that they repealed that section along with section 27.1 which they then incorporated into Section 21. If you're not asleep now, droning on about all these figures, well, more power to you, I guess. But I was trying to verify something with respect to Tom Anderson. Now, he went to Croatia twice. The first time, he escaped injury. When he got back, they needed somebody to go again, and they didn't have enough numbers, so he volunteered to go on a second tour. Now, normally, you don't do that. You're supposed to have so many, so much time in between tours of duty. But he stepped up, and now he has to live with the result that he lost two legs and an eye when his Iltis drove over three stacked anti-tank mines. 
So I was looking at some documents that Tom sent to me, and he had some earnings loss benefit statements in 2009, and they were reducing his earnings loss benefit that he would have gotten, but for the fact that he was getting the Pension Act pension. And I have long been suspecting that the government of Canada violated Section 27.3 of the Veterans Wellbeing Act regulations, but to do so in relation to their own Pension Act pension shocked me. I mean, it disgusts me. Being in control of the law, they could have decided not to write a law to protect the cost of living allowance on a clawback amount. Had they not written that law, then I couldn't be talking to any, if there are any, listeners out there for my podcast. I couldn't say that the government broke the law because they wouldn't have written the law. So, what I'm trying to say about all of these laws being broken is it astounds me that these people would be so arrogant that they write laws to make themselves look good. They can say, look at this, we did this. But then in reality, they don't actually do it. They wrote a law and then they promptly ignored it. Now, I'll relate it to the Canadian Forces Superannuation Act, Section 83, for example, where the Canadian Forces Pension is being taken into account to reduce the earnings loss benefit. And I was just reading, for example, in the a timely tune-up from 2010, where a House of Commons committee said that over half of the veterans are not getting any payment under the earnings loss benefit system because they have the Canada Pension Plan or the Canadian Forces Pension or the Pension Act pension at the time. They said that while this was okay for the insurance industry, it shouldn't be okay for the disabled veteran. Well, then why did it take a lawsuit to have to settle that issue? I mean, it seems to me that they're being hypocrites. In fact, I'll leave you with this note, saying I was talking about hypocrites in the settlement of the CISIP class action lawsuit. Former Minister of National Defense Peter McKay got in the House of Commons, stated that it was over $13,000 an hour that the lawyers would be getting based on the $66 million legal fees in the CISIP class action lawsuit. Now, Peter, why are you complaining about the cost to the veteran when you forced them to sue the government? You didn't have to force them to sue. You could have offered them a settlement offer without having to go to court. So what gives you the right to stand up in the House of Commons and then complain about $66 million in lawsuit fees, which are $13,000 an hour, when you force the veterans to sue in the first place? Good morning, Captain Matt Edward Retard here with another one of my short podcasts. I was writing on Facebook in my observation post group, and I was discussing the law-breaking of our nation. Now, you would expect that the government who create the law, the members of parliament who are elected to make law, that they would then respect that law that they wrote in the past. It might not have been the same people, but the point is the institution wrote laws that were supposed to create immunity from a creditor, including themselves. And the reason I'm writing... uh, Writing. Excuse me for the... Metal slip. The reason I am reason I am talking about this is that I was 
recently finished my book and I was typing, writing all of these things down so that someone might try to fix them in the future, hopefully. And as I was typing on the Facebook group post, I was telling a veteran from Alberta, Denis Ouellette, about the fact that they could have put into the law a, an exception for themselves to claw back any amounts that they say is owing. For example, I was using the Employment Insurance Act, Section 42.2, as my proof, and it says that the employment insurance people can reduce the amount of a future payment in order to take back what it wants for its payment. But Canada didn't put that into the Veterans Wellbeing Act, Section 89. Section 89 is very clear. And it simply states that no one can touch the monies that are paid to a disabled veteran to compensate them for their injury. So my point is, is the government is simply acting in a lawless manner. It is simply doing what it wants to instead of obeying what is known as the rule of law. And I know it's kind of boring, but I'll read off what the Section 89 says. Section 89.1, no compensation payable under this act shall be assigned, charged, anticipated, attached, commuted, or given as security. Now, now Section 89.2 is more important, in my opinion. It says compensation payable under this act is exemption from seizure and execution, either at law or in equity. Now, in my opinion, even though I'm not a lawyer, this is the complete exclusion from a clawback of any amount payable. Now the kicker is, is that Veterans Affairs Canada has a law there that eliminates any chance that it can claw back its own money. So if a person got an earnings loss benefit payment that they say was too high, then Veterans Affairs Canada cannot reduce a future payment because the law says it is not allowed. Section 89.2 comes into play. And you see a clawback is what is known as a creature of equity. So there's no need for a law or a contract or a statutory law to come into play. Equity means when I owe you and you owe me, then, you know, the person that has the net difference, that's all that has to be paid. But when Canada put that exempt from law and equity into the law, it said that it cannot bring into effect a clawback because that's what a clawback is, a creature of equity. So to make things simple, if they had used language that was like the Ontario Workers' Compensation Type Act, which I'm going to look up right now and read it off directly, uh, it says that no claim may be set off against them. Now, if the Veterans Affairs Law had such simple language as no claim may be set off against them in its act, then I don't think veterans would be having their amounts clawed back. Now, Denis Ouellette, he's actually had his Pension Act pension clawed back, which I find atrocious. That was part of the lawsuit, the reason he had a lawsuit against the Canadian government in the CISIP long-term disability case. And it was said that the payment was for pain and suffering, and I'm going to get a shot in against that because it's not for pain and suffering. According to the 22nd of 
June 1970, uh, Hansard, it was the Pension Act was going to continue to be based on the basic after-tax income of the cleaners and helpers group, which I call janitors. I don't know if they're really janitors. I mean, there might be something else, but I can't compare it to the more recent one because the federal government got rid of all of its janitors and it outsourced them and contracted it out to private companies. So there are no more federal janitors. I mean, that's just the way the world changed. But the Pension Act pension is not for pain and suffering. Every time I get a chance, I get a shot in against that. And I'm not just making this stuff up. If the listener wants to see if I'm right, have a look at the Ontario Court of Appeal case, the War Amputations of Canada, 1997 case. And it said three different things. I always forget the third one, but there's a debt owed to the veteran. Gratitude, and I think income support might be the third. So there are three reasons they said that the Pension Act is paid. But the most important one is to repay the debt that is, you know, owed to the veteran. Now, I'll give another shot in as well against the support law crap because it seems to me that there's a great injustice being done. And I've been trying to help a group of veterans that are being harmed by the divorce mess. And the judges are trying to call the Pension Act pension and the new veterans charter payments income. But I have news for them, the people who believe that these payments are income. They aren't. They're basically a make-whole payment. So to put a very crass example into play, if a person such as Paul Franklin, he was blown up in, Ken, in, in Kabul, and uh, he lost two legs. So if he gets, and I know he gets, a Pension Act pension, he's getting a payment to replace his legs each month. Now... If he was hypothetically involved in a divorce case and had the judge say that his Pension Act pension was income, which it isn't, then he would be having a portion of his legs replacement payment sent to his ex each month because they labeled it as income. That's horrible. You should not be paying part of your body to your ex-spouse. Now, you may part on good terms, you may part on bad terms, but in no way, shape, or form is the payment made to a veteran because of their service injury to make them whole. In no way, shape, or form is that income. I can prove that relatively simply. If it was income, it would be considered income under the Income Tax Act, and Canada chose to exclude it under Section 81.1d. So the government of Canada's official position is that the payment made to a disabled veteran is not income to be taxed, and therefore it is also not income to be assigned to somebody else, either by a court or some other device. It is just off limits, and I'll call it quits on that. Nope, we're up to 8 minutes and 14 seconds. Good afternoon, Captain Matt Edwards Howard here with another short podcast. <clears throat> this podcast is brought to you by the idiots at Veterans Affairs Canada who recently sent out payments to disabled veterans and spouses and survivors under the Pension Act. And what happened was, according to CBC's Murray Brewster, is they had an incredible accounting blunder, he called it. From 2003 to 2010, they failed to do 
up the Pension Act pension properly, and it was supposed to be uh, paid, increased, adjusted by the greater of the cost of living adjustment as per the consumer price index or the wage index. Now, that's a very big difference because you don't just do the consumer price index. There's a choice, whichever one's to the benefit of the veteran. But between 2003 and 2010, evidently, 270,000 veterans were ripped off, about $100 million. So they decided to pay these people off recently. But they paid them exactly what they owed them, which, if it was 2003, for example, and this is 2019, that's 16 years ago, and the same amount of money is not worth as much now as it was then. That's the reason when you make a payment to someone because you had money that they owned, you have to give compound daily interest. Everybody knows that. That is a common sense proposition. It's a notorious fact. Now, added to that is <clears throat> a case that I was reading about called the Bank of America Canada case in 2002 in Supreme Court of Canada. And they said... The value of time, uh, money decreases with the passage of time. A dollar today is worth more than the same dollar tomorrow. Three factors account for the depreciation of the value of money. Opportunity, cost, risk, and inflation. So you see, Veterans Affairs Canada, when they're paying the people who were disabled and serviced in Canada, first of all, think about that. It's not a social welfare payment. This is a repayment payment, a payment for the personal injury a person suffered in Canada's service. What they needed to do is as soon as they realized their problem, they needed to fess up and say, excuse me, people are human. People make mistakes. We made a mistake here. We missed this. We should have noticed it quicker, but we're going to fix it. Here's our plan. Instead of doing that, they covered it up. That's all I can call it is a cover-up, okay? So they could have came forward and then admitted wrong, and then fixed it. But instead of doing that, as the government always does, it did a cover-up. Now, there is a lawsuit on the go. I do believe Dennis Manoush has launched a class action lawsuit. And at first, my point was, why the hell would you do that if the government's paying it out voluntarily? Now that I've seen people get gypped, ripped off by the time value of money, more power to you, Dennis. Go for it. Make them pay. Ask for 10 or 15 or 20 times as much in damages because the Pension Act is basically a peace of mind insurance. So the Pension Act is supposed to give you peace of mind. And because it doesn't give you peace of mind that these people paid the wrong amount, they actually committed a tort, I believe. It's called negligence because there was a law that stated that they had to do this, but they didn't do that. So they acted outside the law. Now, that means they committed a wrong. You have to obey the law. It's not a choice. The laws are mandatory. So basically, one of the main reasons, though, I decided to do this podcast, I was thinking about getting on the computer and type it up because this veteran was a part of the CISL class action lawsuit. Now, when the government was paying out the damages to those people, they didn't send out the money and just say, enough's enough, here's the money. They actually paid simple interest. I don't agree with that. I think they had to pay them compound daily interest or higher. But how stupid, at least it appears that way to me, is it to take veterans that were more than likely part of the CISA class action lawsuit, they got the interest 
on that settlement. Then, in 2019, only seven years later, you send out a payment with not even the simple interest that they paid on that class action. I think that could well be criminal. Good morning. I'm going to try something new today. I'm going to dictate, read aloud, I guess, a column I just wrote. I guess I can say for uh, the people who don't like to read, I love to read, but frankly I haven't been reading very much these days. I'm so down the rabbit hole about all of the different things that I'm trying to work on, but I've been writing columns, and let me read off a column for those who are interested in my own voice, seeing I actually wrote the thing with my own words on the computer. The title I chose was 0% Interest. When you buy something, there might be a deal on 0% interest on a loan. Maybe automobile makers make 0% or low interest to attract customers, for example. To pay 0% on the damages that Canadian citizens suffer because the government of Canada broke the law is atrocious. Leading seaman retired, Sean Kareen served his nation from 1991 to 2003. He was awarded the Pension Act pension as a result of his injury in Canada's service. That award is supposed to be increased by the greater of the after-tax wage index, or the consumer price index, as prescribed by law. By coincidence, he received less than what he should have been paid to compensate him for the damages he suffered because the nation committed a tortuous act in failing to obey the law passed by Parliament. It committed what Murray Brewster of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation called an incredible accounting blunder. Failing to obey statutory law is most certainly an incredible blunder, but an illegal one. Had the government acted lawfully, he and approximately 270,000 Canadian citizens would have gotten what they were legally owed at the time they were legally due to get the compensation. As they did not, everyone knows that they had to get some kind of compensation for the lost value of time, right? Wrong. Leading seaman retired Kareen asked Veterans Affairs Canada about the interest that he should have received. Veterans Affairs Canada's absurd reply, no interest is payable due to Section 90 of the Veterans Wellbeing Act. A very absurd reply to a legitimate concern. The law states, Section 90, no interest shall be paid in respect of any compensation that is payable under this act. Interesting, like my pun, the compensation paid to leading seaman retired Kareen was not compensation under this act, but damages paid under the Pension Act. Unlike the Veterans Wellbeing Act, the nation did not turn its mind to interest as a word search for interest came up dry. However, Parliament did pass an Interest Act. It stipulates interest rates when none provided. Section 3. Whenever any interest is payable by the agreement of the parties or by law, and no rate is fixed by the agreement or by the law, the rate of interest shall be 5% per annum. As a long-time critic of absurd governmental actions, I submit 5% per annum compound daily interest must be paid in order to make sure he is made whole. Notorious facts are those everyone knows. Everyone knows that you must get compound daily interest if someone else is holding into your property. Seeing that I know a lot about case law, I can cite the Bank of America Supreme Court of Canada 2000 case as this precedent backs me up. Everyone also knows that a dollar today is not worth a dollar tomorrow. Perhaps we could say a dollar tomorrow is not worth a dollar today. Either way, this is true. Canada could have avoided this legal problem by simply obeying the law. That is a common theme in the things that I am criticizing the nation about. Who wrote that absurd law? 
Do they think that simply because the government was elected by the voter that they can simply rule by absolute fit unless we, until we elect the next elected dictator? No. Law, laws in a common law democracy must be reasonable. They must reflect Canadian values. Unless Canadian values include saving money at the expense of those disabled in service to them, this law must be repealed and struck, or struck down by the courts. As I start, the court of public opinion war starts now at least on the subject of 0% interest.